This is an ABC podcast. Have you got your headphones on? I have my headphones on. Excellent. And your microphone's on? That's good. It's a good start. We're about a week and a bit out of the state election, and I'm looking at October 31, and from where I sit, the LNP are going backwards, and I think they're going to lose four to five seats. Although I don't have... I don't have polling. I don't have data. Well, that's funny because today we're all about the polls. We're talking to one of the most experienced pollsters in Australian politics. So I'd be interested to see what her data says and how she's reading the tea leaves of Queensland state politics today. So this is Roy Morgan. They do a different style of polling. They're normally not one of those companies that rings you up unannounced at some point in your evening when you try to you know, spend 10 minutes with your family. But Steve, you reckon you've already called it? LNP's losing four to five seats. If you're right, $3,000 Cartier watch for you. Fantastic. Just like Australia Post. Okay. Pumice Stone, Caloundra, Corumban, and I reckon Clayfield's going to be risky. Okay. Mm. Right. So that's four that's, of them. That's you know that's recorded. Yeah, you know I, know I will I know be playing this I, back. I know you'll be playing it back. Yeah. You're a brave man. I just, I think the ALP is is probably going to get home. Uh, I think that either Catter or One Nation Party will pick up a seat up around Keppel. I'm not quite sure. Maybe Catter's pick up one around one of the three council seats. I don't know. Not watching it closely enough. But this election is really intriguing. It's just inverted all the knowns. You know, let's let's do a, a known unknown moment. It, everything that was known, I think, is now unknown, and everything that was unknown previously now looks like it's you know quite predictable. So I think it's going to be quite an interesting outcome on Saturday. And everything but that the you government's don't know not going to be a self-owned Monday <laughs> after the election. Well, I'm happy to wear it because I just I look at the the different issues and movements. I take the comments of our guest last week, Ann Tiernan. You know, there are 93 different election campaigns, not one state election campaign. And I think that's probably right. And I think there's very grassroots feeling in a number of areas that are going to actually make some unusual adjustments to the balance of uh, seats in Parliament. Also today, I want to talk about the very building they're all playing for, Parliament House. How we got the beautiful Parliament House that we have now and the absolute debacle of a process to get it pretty much cost one man his, his career and you could even say his life. If you think that bungled, long, overcost infrastructure is a thing of the modern day, well, you're going to be sadly mistaken. Well, I've enjoyed the, the raid on Parliament that you told us about. I've enjoyed the, the story about the Lucinda, which is not a government jet, but a government paddle steamer. Although I am kind of suspecting that somewhere before this podcast ends, Sometime after the state election, you're going to have a Parliament House ghost story. You know, that place is made for some sort of ghost story. You know, the, the ghost of speakers past or something. You know, it's got to well, be Well, there's there. a lot of abnormal activity there. <laughs> yes. the, so you, maybe, maybe I'll look into it. <laughs> Our guest is Michelle Levine, a very experienced researcher with Roy Morgan Research in Australia. She's got qualifications in both psychology and environmental studies. I want to ask you first of all about how Roy Morgan Research speaks with people. You, you actually do it differently from most polling companies that people would be familiar with. You do predominantly face-to-face -face or normally face-to-face -face interactions. Tell me about it. 
Yeah, we do. Look, we at Roy Morgan believe that we're trying to get to the heart of what people think and make sure that we're talking to real people and make sure that we're talking to real people all over Australia, not just capital cities or anything like that. So what we do is we have hundreds of interviewers that each week will be going out knocking on people's doors and asking those people how they feel about a whole range of things, whether it's politics or their new car or their bank account or their electricity company or their dog. And we're talking to them, you said, face-to-face, and it is. It's literally across their dining room table. It's wherever that person's most comfortable, but you at least know it's a real person. Is it harder to mislead or divert or even deliberately steer a researcher off the track if they're actually there face-to-face? You can't say there's always weird people in the world, and I think you've got your fair share in Queensland. But <laughs> We, um, we call know, them mavericks or colourful oh, characters. Yes, here. we call them MPs. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say that the first thing that you can be sure of is you're talking to a real person. You're not talking to a robot yeah. or you're not talking to you know some stacking issue where people are sort of throwing boats into a system to game the system. There's none of that. The most that you might find is somebody's a little bit embarrassed about something and they therefore, you know, so they can't say. I remember once my my bride once said to me, you know, you don't listen. Um, (laughs) And and it makes me think that, A, she was right, but people at at a very certain level want to feel listened to. You are so right. Rather than spoken at or lectured at, which is what politicians tend to do, advertisers, journalists, people like myself, we often are often telling people things rather than listening to what people are saying about things. You're so right. And I remember as a young researcher saying to Roy, who was then very important founder of the company, really, will people sort of do an interview with a half an hour or even an hour at the door? And he just looked at me and he said, Michelle, nobody listens these days to anybody for half an hour. How often does that happen? How far back was this? This was probably about 1985 or something. Right, okay. Pre-internet, yeah. Yeah, it made me think that we actually don't listen. But Roy's point was was to listen to these people, that if we don't do it from an independent perspective, then journalists and politicians will just claim to speak for the people. Yeah. Yes. How true is Ouch. that? Did, Ouch, yes. Did Roy, did Roy not have a high opinion of journalists, Michelle? Um, Roy, I'm not sure who he had a high opinion of. <laughs> he was a wonderful man, though. He was absolutely focused on truth, accuracy, the detail. You know, we lived in fear of recording something in a blue pen when it should have been a red pen. We'll get into what you've found about Queensland in just a moment, but I've got one other preliminary question. Over the years that Roy Morgan has been listening to people, is there any coalition between what's often called consumer confidence or consumer satisfaction and the direction in which they vote? Yeah, there's actually quite a strong correlation. So typically when you have high levels of consumer confidence, it's not even economic, it's how we feel about our economic situation, how optimistic we feel. It's very much a feeling thing. When you have high levels of consumer confidence, the likelihood is that the government in power will be returned. When people are feeling worried, uncertain, terrified about the future, thinking everything's going in the wrong direction, there's a level of blame that goes to the government. And of course in Queensland, you have strong consumer confidence, or not really strong historically, but strong compared to the rest of Australia. 
and that augurs well for the Labor government. So, Michelle, I, I speak with different people who work in a similar field to you and they, they tell me that to get responses from people, you need to emotionally connect with them. But one of the big emotional drivers is fear, whether we like it or not. If people fear something, it's a big emotional driver to some sort of of action. Are people looking at or thinking about or being driven by fear or their fears in any way at the moment here? There are always fears and it's just a case of knowing which one's going to pop up the day before the election or in that line to where you post your ballot slip. But today, if we ask Queensland electors what they'd be worried about if the ALP government were re-elected, what you find is that for Labor voters, they quite like the Labor government and their big concern is that the Labor government won't have a free enough reign. They're concerned that the LNP federal government will actually stop them being able to do the things that they want to do and they won't be able to get on with the job. On the other hand, LNP supporters or non-Labor supporters are really concerned about economic management, very concerned about poor economic management and overspending. So there's extraordinary angst about the spending, particularly on the public service, and wasted spending. So there's real frustration there among the LNP. There's a lot of discussion about lack of integrity and corruption. So that's sitting there and that will sit there as a big lump in the throat of the LNP people as they go to the election. And Michelle, did you get a similar sense of those fears surrounding an LNP government? Clearly, LNP voters were less likely to have major concerns, but even those people, even those intending to vote for the LNP, had concerns about Deb Frecklington and concerns about her leadership skills and concerns about the readiness of the party to lead. That was an issue even for people who were predisposed to vote for the LNP. On the other hand, for ALP supporters, apart from that quality of leadership, the real issue was about plans to cut services cut public service jobs and cut spending. There was a real fear that there would be just job losses because the LNP would start to make cuts, particularly to the public service, infrastructure, etc. That was the biggest concern. Okay, well, that's where the Labor Party's really been attacking the LNP, so perhaps they're doing similar research to you, Michelle. Is there anything you picked up about Clive Palmer? Do you know what? That was exactly what I was looking for and it's not really emerging. There were things that I thought I'd see, and that I think there was one mention of Clive Palmer in amongst a survey of over a 1,000 people. So that's not top of mind for people, interestingly enough. Michelle, let's get into where are the major parties at? The ALP government is leading with a really slim majority. So on a two-party preferred basis, the ALP is at 51%, the LNP at 49%. So it, it's very slim, could go either way, but at the moment the Labor Party is ahead. And, of course, the two-party preferred comes from primary support and then where preferences go. So in terms of primary support, the ALP is sitting at 36%, which is just a whisker higher than it was at the election, and just in front of the LNP that's on 35%. Basically what we've seen this election is that the major parties have actually gained support. Both of them have gained support at the expense of Pauline Hanson's One Nation and the, the Greens and Cat is pretty much unchanged. But 
although Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party is down almost two points since the last election, it's still polling 12%, so that's a really strong number. So at, at 51% to the ALP, 49% to the LNP, tell me about the margin of error, because this is really important when you're looking at all polls, isn't it? Yes. Look, on a margin of error, on a statistical basis, if that played out the right way across the board to all of the seats, the ALP would be re-elected. I don't think it's a statistical margin issue. It's actually the fact that this boring thing that everyone says, but they're absolutely right, is that a week is a long time in politics. So that could change enough to actually see the election go the other way in one week. And we've seen many instances of that, and I think that's more important than a statistical artefact. Michelle Levine, do you record undecided responses, people who say, I can't say either way? Do you actually record that, or do you do what was done previously? Yeah, we do, and I think the undecided in this poll was about 5%. I'm interested in that if that 5% is greater or lesser than previous polls. This is about normal. Right, okay. We've done a lot of work drilling down into undecided people and I tell you it's, it's, there's not much benefit from understanding how they're going to go. They're simply really not that engaged mm. or there's some people who are saying I'm terribly important, I'll make up my mind on the day and I'm going to look at what's in it for me but really it's, it's a bit of an amorphous group. Michelle, I'm also fascinated by this question that you asked, do you believe the Queensland border to New South Wales should be open now or not? Were you surprised by what you found? I shouldn't be surprised by any research, but yes. So the, you're right, we asked that question and we found that 53%, a majority of Queensland electors said, no, don't open the border right now. And we actually had um, more men saying open the border than women. And importantly, I think, we found a majority of people, 50 plus, the older group, were saying, yes, open the border now. Yeah, that was what really struck out. I mean, obviously, women in general were far more likely to want to keep, to keep the border closed. Yes. But And the under 35s, 61% want to keep it closed, whereas yes. the over 65s, and the over 50s just want it, want it to open in, in the majority. That's uh, interesting, given the, the older group are the more vulnerable. Yeah, I think that's true. And clearly, they don't actually see the border opening up as introducing a greater level of vulnerability to them. But I think what we've got, this border opening or closing, it's like a proxy for is it time for us to throw off the shackles of this coronavirus and all of the lockdown and get back to economic business? It's these absolutely polar approaches to the coronavirus. One is to say, lock up, let's keep safe, let's all stay home under the doona and protect everything at whatever cost. And the other one is saying, okay, let's do the best we can and let's start navigating a world where coronavirus exists, but let's get back to business. So I, I have a theory that, that Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister's JobKeeper action, has actually helped Anastasia Palaszczuk's position because while people are aware of the massive debt load that Queensland has and the uncertain economic environment, a lot of people are not anywhere near the economic pain that would normally be experienced from a lockdown because the federal government payments has actually softened the economic blow dramatically. 
absolutely agree with everything you said. And one of the points that I wanted to make about this election is timing's critical. There's a Labor plus here, and it's absolutely because of what Scott Morrison or what the, the federal government did in terms of cushioning the economic blow. We actually have, from all of our other data on people's spending behaviour and their saving behaviour and their incomes, etc., we have those people at the sort of middle to lower income levels are financially better off today than they were pre-COVID. They have more money and they've got less things to spend it on. Isn't that extraordinary? I mean, wow. Exactly. When you think about it and you think about the way that the government support was handed out, but it really put money in the pockets of people for whom it made a huge difference and actually didn't just boost them up to where they would have been. It gave them more. So what that means is that there is no lived experience yet of the economic pain that is about to come. I think if the election were held after Christmas and the impact on tourism of the border lockdown had been lived experience for Queenslanders, the election would be a very different situation. And once again, if the election were held sort of June or something like that, when all of the job keeper, job seeker and support packages for business and everyone else to cushion the economic effect, if that had all gone and the unemployment had hit the roof like it will, it again would be a very different issue because people wouldn't be thinking, well, gee, I'm really glad I'm safe. They're doing a great job. We need to do the right thing. They'd be thinking, gosh, where where am I going to get enough money to live? The balance would change. But the election's not being held after Christmas and it's not being held in the middle of next year. And at the moment, we actually, none of us in Australia, are feeling the economic pain and the unemployment that's likely to come. Well, Matt, Queensland's Parliament is a beautiful building. It's actually one of my favourite buildings of Brisbane. But what's surprised me is how little I've known about it so far, because every time we've done this discussion or chat, you've brought a, a new element of Queensland's parliamentary history that I was completely ignorant of. So how are you going to reveal more of my ignorance now? <laughs> I'll save you the trip over to Parliament House, and I'll tell you the history of how the Parliament got built. So the colonial powers that be in 1863 mm-hmm. were really short of cash. But they were desperate to get Parliament out of its existing venue, the old convict barracks in Queen Street. They hated the symbolism of meeting in the old convict barracks. And the Premier and Governor had much loftier pretensions for Queensland, believing, for instance, they could transform Somerset, which is on the tip of Cape York, into a rival for Singapore. That's how big they were dreaming. Mm. So they held a competition to design Parliament House. The budget that people were told that they had to play with, £20,000. Okay. The prize money, £200 if you you were the winner, which was about a fifth of the fee the top architects in Brisbane would normally charge. Okay. So already their noses were out of joint. Right. And colonial governments around Australia had a bit of form in holding competitions (laughs) so they could effectively steal ideas and make buildings on the cheap. You know, I think this, the same thing still happens now, but anyway, keep going. Because <laughs> you'd sign over the IP yep. to your designs. Yep. And then they'd say, sorry, you didn't win. Yeah. But then you'll see something All similar sudden, crop up in a building somewhere. Yeah, hang on a second. <laughs> That's my idea. Still, okay. they, got, they got 11 entries. All right. But seven of them were rubbish. So four were shortlisted and some big time architects threw their hat in, including a guy called Benjamin Backhouse. 
and the the judges thought this guy's design is the nicest. It looks great, but it's too expensive. Okay. His budget thirty seven thousand pounds too much, and so they gave the brief to their official colonial architect Charles Tiffin. So he sensed that there'd be criticism, given he was an advisor to the judges already on the payroll as the official architect. Yeah. He's got the inside running. It's exactly. a fix. Yeah. The fix is in. Yeah, and so he, he kind of <laughs> quickly donated the £200 prize money to the new Ipswich Grammar School. But this was a job that quite nearly ruined him. The Brisbane Courier newspaper, on the day of the announcement, called Tiffin's designs austere and ugly. And the paper demanded Backhouse be appointed. A petition was launched. Parliament was in uproar. A bill was rushed through and Tiffin was granted a budget. Not of £20,000, of £30,000. <laughs> Already 50% higher. That's about $7 million in today's money. So two years later, let's go two years down the track, 1865, the budget mm. blows out again. Oh, no. £49,000. The public works projects ever come in on budget? I can't recall a single project. Here, keep going. So eleven that's eleven and a half million dollars in today's okay. money. <laughs> they laid the foundation stone on May the fourteenth in a ceremony, great pomp, but it got lost. Oops. We don't know where it is. <laughs> they lost the foundation stone. Yeah. How can you lose the foundation stone? They did the whole stone? time capsule thing and everything. The governor was there, everyone's like, This is brilliant. They lost the foundation stone. We don't know where stone. it is. The very <laughs> Meanwhile, Backhouse is still spewing. Okay. He wants compensation mm -hmm. all the time he put in. So it was a terrible blow for poor old Benjamin Backhouse. He eventually packed up his trade, moved into state. Tiffin, though, he was stuck with this. He endured further public ridicule, parliamentary grillings before the building was eventually opened in 1868. He attempted one small act of rebellion. Mm. Above the heads of the members of the upper house, he placed a statue of a sheep. The Minister for Lands, though, he immediately spotted it and called it out, saying it was a dig at the aristocratic privilege of those in the upper house, symbolising the reign of what he thought was the pure Merino dynasty. And Tiffin protested, of course. Yeah, no, there's no hidden meeting, but it all got taken down anyway. And by that stage, Tiffin had been demoted to superintendent of works and bridges. His career would be over in two years. He'd be dead within five at the age of 40. What is it about public buildings in Australia and architecture that always ends in controversy, shame, argument, cost blowout. It's, it's a theme in I, this country. I can tell you in one sentence, you cannot do art by committee. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.